What's going on, everybody? This is Justin Smith of Palmetto Coast Exotics, and this is the Chondrocast, the podcast about green tree pythons and the people that keep them. Enjoy the show. I've kept those two together for a hot minute. Never had a problem. I literally walk in front of the the cage to yeah. un- unplug the lights because I do it all myself. I don't have anything on timers. Yeah. <clears throat> and all of a sudden, um, the females grabbed the male, wrapped him, and then realized, I guess, that he wasn't food, released him. And then I tried to, like, pull her out because she was on the ground. They were both were. And, uh. It's just been a, it was a disaster. There was some bloodshed and <laughs> then they like yeah, hit each other again. And so then I finally, I just pulled him. I was like, whatever, dude. I was like, y'all are done. Time out. Yep. <laughs> yeah. It scares the hell out of me when they do that. I, I had, hope, I, 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 I was messaging permanent. you saying mine did the same thing about a month ago and it was the exact same thing. I, I walked by the enclosure and uh, for whatever reason that, that movement set her off and she grabbed him. And, uh, but they let go almost immediately. It was violent. Yeah. They're yeah, crazy. I didn't like it. That's the, that's the most action I've seen out of that, those two at all. Yeah. <laughs> Fighting. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Annihilating each other. It's a hate, hate relationship. It's no love yeah, there yet. Yeah, it's not, uh, <laughs> not friendly or domesticated. No. Even though, you know, just when we try to like pump them up as the superior Morelia all the time, they yep. do stupid shit yep. like that. Last night I was, uh, what was I doing? I don't know. I walked into the room and the female was like cruising in the bottom of the water bowl with like from her neck to her face. Oh, yeah. And she was like t- looking Snorkeling. around. The... Yeah. Like she was looking for the exit. <laughs> I'm like, Jesus. Like, these things... It's up. Oh, my God. <laughs> I don't understand how you guys have survived as long as you have. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're idiots. Um, but welcome everybody. This is episode twenty-two of the Condro Cast. It has been a hot minute since I've recorded an episode. Uh, it's been like three months since you're back. Since, it's like a fine-aged wine. That's right. Since James and Andy came on, that was the last episode I did. And uh, yep, yeah had a handful of people that have been messaging me. They're like, when do you do another episode? And I'm like, I don't I don't know. My my dance card's pretty full now, so I pretty much yeah, it was like Conjurecast is kind of one of those things now where it's like when I get to it, I get to it. Yep. It's not yep. uh not something on the docket of things to to really make sure I pump out regularly. So I think it lends itself for that anyway, because you know, you're you're focused on like one species, whereas everybody else, all the other podcasts are kind of generalized. And, uh, you know, this is like a very, very specific yeah, one. It is. So, you know, it makes sense you wouldn't be pumping them out constantly. I guess it is. It, yeah, that's for the better. But yep. tonight's, I mean, tonight's episode is going to be sweet because we got Tim Morris coming on. Oh, so yeah. What a the better, OG. What a better way to, to make sort of the comeback of sorts. Yep. Than, uh, than with him. So excited to, to talk to him. I'm, I know a lot of people are probably hoping we talk about blue stuff 
I want to talk about blue stuff, but I don't want blue stuff to be the like the whole focus of the, the show. dominant theme. Because yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, if anybody wants to hear about sort of the backstory with that and not whatnot, you can go to the GTP Keeper Radio episode he did about four years ago, where he yep. sort of outlined all of that, which I'm sure we'll touch on a little bit. But yeah, that's a great podcast. It was a good listen. Yeah, yeah, I listened to it today, it was, and uh, well, I listened to, like half of it last night, and then I listened to the other half this morning. Yeah. You know what I'm most excited about talking with him is that, um, you know, he really is one of the original guys doing yeah. it. And, I don't think and, people I realize mean, how far back he goes, you know? Yeah. Yeah. You know, you're talking decades. And, uh, you know, my experience with these goes back to like 2012, 2013. Mm-hmm. And he was doing it back in the 90s. And, uh, you know, I, I can only imagine the different things that he's experienced along the way. Yeah, that's what I'm super super intrigued to, to find out is just how seeing like you it's not often you find someone who's sort of seen the spectrum of how things have been yep. over the course of three decades you know especially with one species in particular uh so i'm really anxious to to hear that and he's a really yep. cool guy i mean he's he's very very humble he's very friendly he uh we got to hang out at daytona a little bit at p and cody bartolini's place uh with him and james opdow yeah it was a really good time they're they're good friends they're pretty funny together too so yeah yeah i'm excited he uh i think he's actually he might write for the magazine some too oh awesome he's mentioned wanting to to throw his hat into that ring so yeah that would be great yeah i'm pumped about that <clears throat> um but i mean what, what's been going on on your end man um well i'm, I'm hoping to get some eggs this year uh again I um I have a female. She just had her prelay shed. Uh, I think it was this past weekend, like Friday ish, mm-hmm. if I recall correctly. So she's on the home stretch, and then uh, I've got another one who um, definitely had swelled up. I was thinking it's follicles, um, so I'm still kind of watching that at the moment. It it could have been an ovulation. Um, she's looking kind of opaque mm-hmm. right now, so I'm kind of wondering. Um, so, you know, time will tell on that. I'm just going to watch her close. There's definitely something going on, which right. is good. And, and both of those are um, straight, you know, Manaquari pairings, which I, that's what I really wanted to do all along. So I'm, mm-hmm. I'm looking forward to these to see what I can get. Um, that's really, really becoming probably my favorite locality out of all of them. Oh, I love like, them. The more I yeah. see them, the more I keep them. Because I have, you know, I have one of the kids from you. Yep. Um, I've got that. Uh, one that was produced by Tim Crowther that I got from Brian Fisher. Yep. Um, and I don't know. I mean, it's just it, every time I see him, man, that just that's become just one of my favorites. Uh, I think that that little yellow neo from David Hockstadt that's also got some manok in it, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, it certainly has the the phenotype, <clears throat> the look. You so know, I'm interested to see how those all turn out, but yeah, it's just hard to beat. You know, they got the the right proportion of blue and green. Yeah, they're pretty striking. You know, when you get one that has that nice dorsal going on, whether they're yellow or or red babies, mm-hmm. they both to me look amazing when they when they're adults. You can't lose. Yeah, and even those uh those two that I have from Luke, um that male was labeled as a manaquari type. Luke was kind of like, I don't know that I trust it, but I'm just yep. saying it's Highland, but I think yep. after seeing it it kind of fits the bill, but you know, it could be anything, who knows, but Yeah. Yeah. Oddly enough, that one is almost completely green, and the other one hasn't changed at all. Is that right? It's so bizarre, man. Like, one's almost done changing completely, 
and the other one still just has that one lone patch. And it hasn't hasn't been growing, hasn't like that patch hasn't gotten any bigger. It hasn't changed shape. How old are they now? Uh they're gonna be two in May. Holy shit, yeah. yeah. So that's they're really taking their time. Yeah. Really Which is bizarre. a good sign. I'm not complaining. I mean they're no. uh, once I get this rack from, from Sean, um I may I think I'll have room for all my youngsters to go into that rack. Yeah. I believe. How many slots are you gonna have in that rack? It's a six. It's like two two wide okay. by three tall. Yeah. Nothing major. Twenty quart back heat. Um so I have those two from Luke. I've got what's that three? I might have ooh, I don't know. One of them might have to stay where it's at. Because I've got six and I think I have seven youngsters that need the uh It's an odd one out. Yep. But anxious to get my hands on it. I'm really excited. Sean's uh I think Sean's gonna do some really cool stuff, man. Um Yeah, absolutely. Really looking forward to it. He's been really awesome to work with so far. He's been a really nice guy. Yeah, uh, and he's a Morelia guy, so you know you can trust yep. him. He's yeah, you can't the, go wrong with that. Keeping I, the right I, stuff. I wish him the best. It's uh, it should be interesting to see what he can uh, he can come up with. We always need more quality manufacturers, you know. Yeah, yeah. All right, Tim is asking when we are calling, so let's get him in here. Boop, boop, boop. Uh, Let's merge them. Hello. Hey. Can everybody hear everybody? I can hear you. Tim, can you hear David? I can. Oh, yeah. Cool. Hey, Tim. How you doing? I'm good. How are you? Good. Thanks. We're excited for you to good be here, here man. Go. Yeah, pleasure. I'm. Uh, I'm pretty pumped. It was. It's. This. This isn't nearly as brutal because you know I spent some time with you at Daytona and stuff, so I'm. I'm kind of familiar, and it's. Uh, I'm excited. It's gonna be good. Yeah, looking forward to it. <clears throat> Um, but we'll just we'll just jump right into it. We have our little outline going. Um, so for anybody who's been living under the Chondro related rock, uh, can you just give us the general intro info about yourself, uh, who you are, sort of what you do? You're one of those people that I think a lot of people see your name, but they don't really know who or what you know is behind it, because uh, you know your stuff pops up on so many lineage charts. So can we give everybody sort of the the general who, what, when, where, and why. Well, I don't want to steal too much thunder, I guess, from any of the, I guess, historical questions, but um, um, I guess I was you know, credited back in the 90s for producing the first uh, blue male, or what some people would refer to as the super blue male. That was Mr. Blue. Um, for me, it just kind of started off humbly, I guess, um, the uh, reproductive husbandry of bows and pythons kind of sparked my interest into the green trees and noticing um, a photograph or several photographs in there that were um, credited Trooper Walsh at National Zoo. And so I knew that was relatively close to where I lived. And 
my nephew Sean and I were kind of on a mission to go down and meet this guy to kind of you know see if we can make our way in, not even knowing yeah. at the time, um, you know how much that you know he was working with him before then, you know which went back to the seventies. Um, so then I just you know acquired a couple of animals from him and. Um, I basically, my very first breeding was just the first, the, the only two, uh, condors I have, uh, was one that the, uh, Mr. Blue was hatched out of. Um, so it was kind of a lucky draw in a, in a, in a way. Um, there was a, <clears throat> there was a, um, I'm sure a Trooper kind of had an idea that there was something going on. Um, you know, and again, I'm sure we'll, talk more about that later mm-hmm. and so you know from there just you know bred several more uh, litters um was fortunate enough to be involved in several projects um with a guy named buddy getzker who was into it for a while there um and you know and a couple of other people um and then the mr blue i guess legend i guess continued to live on through john holland who acquired the animal from me I think it was about 1999, and um, he continued to work with others, including Trooper and I believe Rico um, Walter, um, on some breeding projects as well as a couple of as well as a couple of his own. And um, you know, and from there, just um, you know, kept you know breeding some, um, was involved in projects. Um, I haven't uh, bred personally. Um, any condros probably in almost 10 years. Um, I've been involved with some breeding projects through my nephew, Christian, and uh, most recently through uh, with uh, Cody uh, with an animal that he acquired in a collection sale. Yeah, Cody, though, I, I've seen... I haven't seen the ones that, that Bartolini's have in their Nido shed, but I've seen pictures. Mm-hmm. Those things are just incredible. Those are phenomenal animals. Yeah, there's. I don't know what he has left either. Um, I've been down to his place three times and have yet to really. Go. I think I peeked in there once, and that was that was about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I was familiar with the animals that he acquired from uh, Barry and Laura, uh, but I wasn't keeping tabs on the ones that you know continued forward and the ones that you know perished. Mm-hmm. So, what was your what was your first green tree? So when I, and I can get into this story later, there's kind of a funny story behind them. Some of the people I'm sure that will listen to this will have heard it several times mm-hmm. um, on how, you know, uh, I met Trooper. Um, but basically after we met, I um, signed up to be a volunteer at the time I was finishing up uh, my last couple of years of college and I was at Towson University. and became aware of a volunteer program that the National Zoo had and was able to volunteer down there a couple of years during the summer break. And so I got to know Trooper, and um, before that whole thing with him, I'd become friends with Peter Call, who was notorious for the albino boas and the piebald ball pythons, and actually volunteered with him a couple of summers uh, before, you know, the National Zoo. Um, 
So anyways, I was aware of the Breeders Expo down, which at the time was down at the Twin Towers in Orlando. And I remember one time sitting in the office with Trooper, and Trooper's an interesting individual. Um, I owe him a lot. Um, but at the time, you know, when he was working at the zoo, he was he was kind of an, an, an enigmatic person. Sometimes he would greet you and say hi. Other times he would just walk right past you without saying a word. And um, I remember we were upstairs in sort of a lounge uh, slash office area at the National Zoo at the Herp Department. And it was probably July and the Breeders Expo was coming up and I planned on going uh, for the first time. And I was talking to him about whether he was going to be down there. And he said, he's definitely going. And then I told him I was interested in buying condors. He told me he didn't have any to sell. And then he looked at me and said, well, you know, I just don't sell condors to anybody. And I was like, well, okay, whatever. <laughs> you know, I was like, you know, I volunteered down here, sweat my ass off for two, you know, two years, you know, or two summers or whatever. Um, so anyway, so we, we go down to Orlando and of course, he's working with Eugene, yep. and they had a whole table full of condos. And my wife to be at the time, who also knew Trooper, because he had had a couple um, social things um, at his house, which he was known for. She goes right up to him and says, "Well, I hear you didn't have any condos to sell. Looks like you got a bunch." <laughs> and he just kind of grinned at her, you know. And so we were planning to buy. A a condo down there and um, we didn't know anything about Eugene at the time really um, you know we knew of him um, so anyways we started looking over some of the condos they had and um, my wife to be she liked the yellow ones I liked the maroon ones and Trooper of course steered her towards a maroon one and of course steered her towards a somewhat larger maroon baby mm-hmm saying it would be more likely to make the road trip back to Maryland than one of the newborns, um, even though they were all, quote-unquote, well-established. And so we wound up working out like 200 bucks more because the standard price back then was $750 yeah. mm. uh, back in the mid-'90s. Um, so we forked out like 950 for this bigger maroon animal that was born earlier in the year back in February. So the following day, this was, you know, Saturday, we bought the one condo. Sunday we were there, and Tripper had given me one. Um, you know, he kind of pulled out and he, the travel containers that he would put his condors in to take them down to Florida were these little plastic crystal light containers. Crystal light was like this powder you put in water to make yeah. a drink like Kool-Aid or something, right? So I guess he repurposed those containers for traveling condor containers. So he pulls out one of these containers, and he has the snake in it, and he said, you know, I want you to have this, you know, for all the work you've done, you know, at the National Zoo, which was really the first time he'd ever really said anything, acknowledging my work down there Mm -hmm. or or up there. So he gave it to me. He goes, you know, I don't think it's going to amount to anything. It was a, a twin its egg make died, but I know you'll give it a good home. Well, that animal turned out to be the one that people referred to as the legend male, who turned out to be the sire to Mr. Blue. Oh, wow. 
So that little snake, the trooper didn't think would have mapped anything, actually went on to sire, you know, several, you know, really good litters. Um, and so, anyway, so I had those two initially, and they were actually siblings. And unbeknownst to me, they were siblings to what also was known as the computer chondro and several other, you know, notable chondros at the time. And then throughout that year, I guess the following year, you know, I volunteered again the following summer. And, you know, the animals were growing up. They had changed color. Um, it might, be, might have even been two years later. And I was talking to um, a Trooper about possibly swapping one of my animals for one of his to try to get one from a different bloodline. Mm -hmm. And he wasn't interested in the male that I'd raised up twin who hadn't sired anything at the time. He was just under, or maybe just a little bit over two years old at the, at that time. But the female he was kind of interested in. And so he had traded me the female he had sold us for $950, you know, two and a half years prior down in Orlando. Uh, for another female. Well, that female turned out to be a uh, litter mate to Joan Collins and to Powder, you know, which was a very prolific bloodline of many mm -hmm. high-end animals and blue animals. And so I didn't know that at the time. And he didn't know it yet either because, you know, those animals were just starting to turn. Um, but he was interested in mine because at that point he knew, I didn't know, but he knew that there was potential that that line that um, the female I had, which was also the same line as the male, the computer kind of line, might have been potentially het for albinism because of the outcross Maruki that he owned from the Barkers that turned out to be a het for albino. Um, had sired something or some, there was some bloodline that was common to both of those animals um, that could have gone back to the albino. Um, I guess the part, or yeah, I guess the Barkers, you know, the albino originally, but I believe the Barkers did know, and they owned the Marukis that Damon Salfies had bought and produced the first albino from. And then everybody was looking through their, you know, their bloodlines because anything <laughs> with that Maruki outcross yeah. which yeah. came which came from that original Maruki pair of the or the one of the parents and then it was later outcrossed to another, you know, Trooper Walsh, Eugene uh, uh Mutt. And so everybody was kind of scrambling to go back to see. But there was a long shot chance, I guess, that um you know, that bloodline, that computer chondro and my male and that female the original one I bought um, could have been related or could have, you know, been carrying the, the albino gene. So that was really the first one. I acquired a couple of other animals uh, from Trooper. One for, I think it was the following year, I graduated um, Towson and, and took a job as a teacher, and we had to go in for orientation early, like two weeks before the school year even began. So that kind of crushed any thoughts of going down to Orlando at that time. Yeah. So Trooper actually had me watch his house for that time and gave me a chondro for doing so. So I acquired two other chondros, um, one of which was one that 
had primarily more of uh, Eugene's bloodlines in it, um, but I had gotten it from Trooper, and the Trooper had given me another one um, from a different bloodline. Wow. So it kind of started off very, you know, with a very simple, you know, collection. I mean, just mm-hmm. two animals really were the basis for my first two pairings. Um, the second year, I actually bred a male that uh, my nephew Sean Stewart had gotten from, I believe he got it from Trooper. Um, and so we bred that to my blue female the second year in 96, 97. Yeah, at what point did they get into chondros, though? Like, was it you got a handful, and then they noticed them, and then they got into them? Or were they kind of on the, on yeah, the radar? So, um, Sean is, yeah, so Sean is my sister's oldest uh, son. And he and I are within, like, five years of age, so we tended to get into some things together. Oh, okay. And we got, in, and we got into snakes kind of together. Um, in fact, when I first... Um, met Pete Call, I also introduced Sean to Pete as well. We both volunteered for Pete for a couple of summers before we even knew anything, you know, about Trooper and all the green tree stuff. Um, So he and I had kind of been into things for a while. Um, And then when I, you know, and, and in fact, it was Sean and I that went down to the National Zoo to try to meet Trooper. And this was before I volunteered or before anything. I mean, we just went down one winter day, and we were basically going to walk around the reptile house until we ran into a guy named Trooper. And so, um, and that was kind of a funny story, too, because, you know, the basic, you know, stuff they wear is typical of most, you know, zoo, de- you know, zoo departments, you know, basically just the, you know, the khaki stuff. And so we had seen a couple of people walking around. We caught their name tag. They weren't troopers. And we were down in the far end of the reptile house. And there's a um, a door that kind of goes behind one of the lines. And then literally straight across the croc exhibits, there's another door on the other side. So this guy comes out of one door, you know, and this is middle of the winter, you know, khaki shorts, khaki shirt no shoes, carrying a bucket full of rats. And he's walking past us, and I just happened to get a glimpse of his name tag. It said Trooper. And it, no sooner I figured that out than he goes into the other door. So then I was, I was telling Sean, I'm like, dude, that was Trooper. And he goes, no, it wasn't. I'm like, it was. I said, go, go knock on the door. He goes, no, you knock on the door. I'm like, no, I'm not knocking on the door. <laughs> so we sat there for a good five minutes kind of figuring out who was going to knock on the door, right? So we knock on the door finally. And fortunately, Trooper had answered, but he kind of answered like barely opening the door, kind of sticking his face through, almost like Lurch in the Adams family. <laughs> you know, was kind of like looking at us like, can I help you guys? And both he and I are both looking at each other like uh, uh, trying to figure out what the hell to say, right? And so he actually opened the door and let us in behind his main line, you know, which when we were back there, he had many of his own chondros um, and the zoo chondros off exhibit um, in these holding tubs. So he's kind of looking at us like, okay, what can I do for you? Meanwhile, Sean and I are like looking past them, looking down the line, trying to see what cool crap we can see, you know? So we had this, I don't know, maybe a half an hour conversation about things. And 
and he, he was very nice to us, you know, and, and very gracious. And I think it was at that point, um, you know, that Sean and I both were just at that point addicted to it all. And then, um, you know, then I wound up getting a couple of the Condors first, but then there was this pet store in Virginia and I can't remember the name of it. And I remember we went down there, it was me, Sean, and a couple of other people for something else. And they had a green tree in there um, that was just yellow. And it was, you could kind of see some of the baby markings still. Yeah. And they wanted like 900 bucks for it. So we left there and Sean was all jazzed about this yellow condo. So he went back several months later. Baby markings completely gone. This thing's still lemon yellow, except for a green head. And so that became one of the first of the lemon, you know, condros. There were some out west with this guy, Gary Sipperly, mm-hmm. and another guy who was working with um, these so-called lemon, um, you know, lemon lines or whatever. And so he did a little research on it after buying it, and that turned out that that animal had come from Eugene in Florida. Um, we never did quite track down the exact lineages um, that that animal came from. Um, but then Sean later sold that to Tony Nikolai, and that became Tony got into high yellow condors along with the emeralds. Um, but Christian kind of got into it later on. He kind of was he was living with Sean while Sean was going through medical school. And Sean at that point had fairly, he was actually volunteering down at the National Aquarium, uh, mainly for his passion in the poison arrow frogs. And, um, and so anyway, he acquired quite a collection of poison arrow frogs along with some snakes, including chondros. Uh, Christian happened to be living with him. Um, at the time, Christian was into dogs and kind of got thrown into taking care of some of Sean's snakes when he wasn't around. And uh, it wasn't until years later um, after Sean became a doctor, he moved into a house and put everything into this um, building that later became known as the barn. And um, Sean, because he was so busy with, you know, with the new family and everything, kind of drifted out of it. I mean, he kind of kept his nose in things that were going on. Yeah. But the main caretaker was, you know, Christian, who really got into, you know, the green trees, hated the frogs, but loved the green trees. <laughs> I love the frogs. Um, I've got some, and I love them, man. Oh, I love them too, and I, I've always wanted some. It's just the, you know, the food, you know, the food yeah, supply, having flies, to maintain the fruit flies, flies and everything else. That's yeah, and that was the only sort of deterrent. But I love going over to the barn, and one of my favorite things over there is that you know the frogs, the condors, as you may know, are no longer there. Christian moved them all, you know, what he had left up to. Um, his house that he bought several years ago and sort of took up detached garage and converted half of it to what he now calls the mini barn. <laughs> so aside from yeah, that, uh, Oh, go ahead, David. No, I was just going to say, just looping back on, on, you know, your history and the animals you started out with, I, I can't get over like how much, uh, you know, I don't know if luck's the right word or, or what, but just the amount of chondro history that you have and just the first few animals that you acquired is, is crazy. 
know, yeah, I, I, and, I can't get over that. Yeah, and I've told everybody, you know, and it's really no secret to people who know me. I mean, I, I didn't really, you know, I did get credit for the first, you know, Blue Mail, Mr. Blue, and I did produce them, and that was a big thrill. Um, but that was no master plan. I mean, I, they were yeah. the only two condo parents I had. Yep. I mean, I was literally the beneficiary of the years of work the trooper put in. Yeah. Now, trooper would say, you know, after later picking his brain, because he was very, you know, there were a lot of people trying to pick his brain for things, and he was always very sort of measured in, in information that he would give out to people. Guarded. Yeah. Yeah, very guarded. And, you know, it took me a while to kind of get into his inner graces and, um, and, you know, we remain good friends up to this day. Um, but I mean, I was, I mean, literally I was just lucky. I mean, he would tell me that he would, he, he always preferred the maroons. He always tried to hold back the darkest ones that came out of any given litter. But I don't even think, I mean, obviously I, I know that he did not, he did not know the potential that were in some of these lines. I mean, it was really just the timing of getting into it and yeah. just luck of living where I live and being able to have access to somebody like him. Because even in the, you know, the Ross and Marzak book, I mean, there were other people dealing with condos, yeah. you know, at the time, you know, you had, you know, Gary Sipperly, Tim Termizi, you had, you know, several other people, you know, that had been working with him, several zoos that had been working with him. Um, and so, you know, I mean, it was just a luck of time and timing. And I'm so, positive that if Trooper had known what was going to come out of some of these animals later, he probably would have, you know, and he did later on. I mean, you know, he sold, um, you know, he had the old yellow pairing, which led to a whole slew of variety, multicolor, different kinds of animals. They were like the Biak outcross types. Um, and that litter was phenomenal. And, you know, one of the animals that came out of there was nicknamed Daddy Pants by uh, Buddy Getzker. Well, he paid, you know, like $24,000 for that animal. Wow. Yeah. So by that point, that was a little later in the late 90s. Yeah. Um, but I'm sure if Trooper had known that there was that kind of blue potential in some of these animals that he was selling for seven fifty, then... You would have held on to those. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, the funny part of it is, is that you know, after, you know, so I acquired those animals in 93, I think it was. And in 95 was my first litter. Uh, well, actually, first breeding. Um, 96 was when they were born. Um, and, you know, condors are still kind of holding, you know, at 750. But at that point, some people like Bob Clark and a few others started importing a whole bunch of condors, these farm-raised ones. Yeah. Um, Cam Cameron at Bushmaster was, uh, you know, beginning to do the same thing. And that really crashed the market because a lot of the ones that were coming in that Bob Clark and a few others were moving were ones that were non-feeding. You know, they were, they were selling them for like $250. So, I mean, that really, you know, kind of crushed the market because even though you know, Trooper and Eugene always advertised well, and of course their animals were always well established. They had the bloodlines and everything else. It wasn't quite known all the potential that was in these bloodlines. Right. You know when that happened. So, you know they struggled a little bit. 
And in fact, I had Mr. Blue sitting on a table at a local show for a thousand bucks as a baby, you know? So, oh, that's crazy. But, but at the time, people looked at me and was like, I, you know, I can buy a condor for 300 bucks. Why do you think that thing's worth a grand, right? We yeah, still they hear that now. Ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, that, that's exactly right, you know? I've um, literally had people tell me that. They're like, why, yeah. why would I buy this when I can go buy one for 300 And I was like, go buy the one this, for 300 see how it works out, dude. Later. Yeah, I mean, and that's, you know, now it's kind of, you know, in Chipper Eugene, they just kind of held on to, you know, what they were, you know, what they were dealing with. And, of course, as more became known and more animals started getting publicized that came from these Eugene and Trooper bloodlines, then that shifted everything back to, you know, the designer ones, as they were calling them. Right. And I know Mr. Blue had a lot to do with that, too, because it by then he had changed and he was all blue and um and so you know that also had a had a a part in shifting that uh, market as well so tim i'm curious do you know um like how much refinement trooper had already done in the you know the 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 animals that produce the animals that made mr blue i mean had had he you know, done a significant amount of refinement. Like, were those animals looking like anything interesting or spectacular when, when they finally changed, or was this just like a serendipitous, like, out of out of the blue, <laughs> kind of thing that that just happened and nobody saw it coming? Yeah, well, like I said, the um, he had a he had a thing where he would hold back the darkest maroon babies. Yeah. Um, and, you know, stretching my memory back now, I know probably the cornerstone or the keystone animals that were part of his original bloodlines, mm-hmm. um, aside from all the different founders, which came from, you know, legendary people like Carl Slytak, um, you know, the main founder that got a lot of notoriety was Al Zulich's blue female, which was likely a hormonal blue female. Mm-hmm. And... Um, my guess is, and I could be wrong, but my guess is that it was probably in the, you know, around that 92, 93 time when he started seeing some of the benefits of some of the, you know, the breedings that he had done, because I don't know of any remarkable animals other than the outdoors brood female, which shows up many times in their bloodline. Yep. I mean, I've seen some of Trooper's pictures of some of his earlier animals, like I want to say it's 276 or something like that, and he just thought they were, you know, sarong varieties based on what was known at the time about some of the locality looks. Yeah. But I want to say it really was um, a few of the litters of that year because it was the Literally, it was all around the early 90s that had that one litter. I mean, you had Joan Collins, Powder, and My Blue Female that came out of that one litter. Yep. And then the litter that my male was produced from, you know, the egg mate, he was produced in 93. Computer Condro was part of that litter. Um, Oh, who else? There was a couple other notorious um, animals that came out of that same litter. And those were the first of the really, truly designer types 
that I remember seeing coming out of them. Now, I know you, Dean, had some animals that were, um, you know, a little more, um, you know, on the, on the tricolor, they would call, you know, the Bioc outcrosses that would throw like the yellow, white, green, and blue sort of thing. Yep. Um, I also know that the old yeller litter was back then. That was the 89 litter, I believe. And that was a crazy litter. And part of that was zoo-owned, and part of that was, you know, trooper. Um, back at that point in time, uh, they basically let trooper infuse his personal animals with the zoo animals, which mm. no longer has not happened for 20 some odd years or since he left. Um, so he, he had kind of a special arrangement back then with, you know, some of the, um, you know, some of the different bloodlines, the old yellow one being the one. And I actually have, um, several pictures and I've shared them with people and I, I think they may be out there somewhere. Uh, of several of the litter mates to old yeller and every one of them and there's still an animal that's still alive today from that same litter um wow and what's interesting is i have a picture of that animal from back in 92 was it i have to look at pictures and see um see if i can pull them up here but it's interesting to see the color change because one of them was very, um, you know, very gorgeous yellow, blue, green um, animal. And today, even though it's, you know, a geriatric, um, it's largely green um, with some white and things like that. So... Now, do you think? Yeah, so I would guess. I would guess that old Yeller might have been the earliest of the, like, true sort of crazy-looking designer type. Yeah. Yeah, designer types. But the ones that Trooper produced would have been that '93 litter that produced my male, um, and several others, and then of course the, the female litter that produced, or the not the female litter, but the litter that produced, you know, powder old Yeller, and you know that the the, the female that I later uh, got from him. Now, do you think the, the whole dark maroon baby thing is something that's just carried over from Trooper's preference when it came to that? Like now, that's sort of the big thing. Like yellow neonates kind of get written off in a sense. Uh, they've you know, been written every, off for a long time. Every, Trooper's yeah, everyone even, wants yeah. the dark, dark red, like patternless... You know, and I yeah. I had someone asking me about it the other day. They're like, "Does the red or yellow thing really matter?" And I, in my opinion, I've seen some reds that were they looked awesome as neonates, but they turned out to be pretty standard. And then right. I've seen some yellows right. that that you know, same thing. They you have really nice ones, and then you had some that just turned out to be green snakes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes, and that's what he would say. You know that the maroons go through a more dramatic and lengthy color change process. Right. Um, now, so I'm looking here, Old Yeller was produced in 91, uh, with a litter of several other just very remarkable, um, animals. And then the litter my male came from that produced Mr. Blue, uh, Computer Chondro, which was also known as the Calico, you mm -hmm. know, Chondro, that's what Greg Maxwell, 
Um, Aqua Girl came from that same litter. Um, so that was a pretty powerful litter. Then the other one was Joan Collins Powder, My Blue Female Pygar came from that same litter. Um, and then a year after that, there was a litter he produced in 94, which is was uh, old yeller breeding um, to, it was um, old yeller and head. was a couple of them I see. So uh, one of the 94 litters produced the Blue Dragon Lady. Another one produced Lemon Girl and Daddy Pants. Um, the Maruki Outcross was produced in 96. Um, so too was Mr. Blue. So in that 93, 94 were some of the, I guess, more sort of special, you know, litters that yeah, he had. Yeah. And did you have much involvement with Maxwell when he was doing his thing? Not much. I mean, um, you know, Greg, Greg and I knew each other would be cordial to each other. We mm -hmm. really didn't do much together. Um, you know, we kind of a, had a mutual respect, even though, I mean, according to some people, he kind of, uh, I guess kind of dished me a little bit in his book, you know, as far as the blue condor was concerned, um, you know, which I didn't, you know, I mean, a lot of, you know, many things in the book were his opinion. Right. And of course, true. And of course, trooper would always joke that Greg basically wrote the book that he would have written, you know, meaning that a lot of things that Greg did write about condors and their history were really from his conversations with trooper. Mm -hmm. So, you know, but I'm, you know, I'm thrilled that he wrote the book because it needed to be written. And I don't think Trooper had the time or energy, at the, you know, to do that. Um, so I, I think it's, you know, definitely a good resource in a lot of ways. And a lot of great of the archival pictures from back in the day are there because Greg was careful to get as much of the pictures and information. Um, in fact, a lot of people were going back to his website which contained a lot of information about the bloodlines mm -hmm. long after he got out of it. And what about Rico? Did you, uh, did you ever do? Yeah, anything? I didn't really do much with Rico either. I mean, we knew, you know, of each other and we hung out sometimes. Um, so we did, you know, so we didn't really, you know, do much. And then for a long time, he was just producing, you know, kind of, I mean, for lack of a better word, just kind of run to the mill condros. And then he too started getting into, you know, some of the designer ones mm -hmm. as well, slowly over time. In fact, people would kid at him when they were doing the, um, I guess this was probably early 2000s. Um, Trooper and, and John Holland and Rico and a few others, kind of Marshall Mendez all banded together put together this thing called the Condra Coalition. And I remember they would always joke with Rico because Rico would always make, in general, he would make more money mm -hmm. because Marshall, John, Trooper, they were all high-end designer types. Rico had some designer types, but a lot of just, you know, run-of-the-mill yeah. sort of, you know, starting lines or whatever. Nothing remarkable about them, but, he, you know, he had some good lines that were later infused as some of the designers that, you know, produce some remarkable things. 
Um, but a lot of people, you know, aren't going to come up and impulse purchase, you know, ten thousand dollars, right. you know, green tree python. So, right. you know. Well, David can attest to that. He's got to that some of that that Rico Schiavino stuff. Going yeah, on. I mean, he had some great. I mean, some of his Bioc outcross stuff was great, and some of the Biocs that he had, you know, went into some of the other bloodlines and produced some, you know, really nice stuff. Did you ever experiment with the stuff like that, like throwing Bioc into anything that you had going on as far as the trooper stuff? Or I did. A, I mean, a little bit. Um, you know, one other thing that's kind of surprising um, to some is that, I mean, throughout my sort of career with, with the condos, um, I mean, I, personally, I probably only hatched maybe a dozen litters, maybe a, maybe a few more than that. Um, you know, so I didn't do as many. Like, I mean, Christian had produced more litters in one year than I produced over time, which part of that was because, you know, I didn't think I would keep my sanity if I did any more, you know, any, any more than a litter or two, you know, literally, I mean, any more than a litter or two, um, you know, at a time. So it was one of those things where you kind of be, be careful what you ask for sort of things, you know, and I remember one year when we were, you know, when I was living at at my nephew's and uh, my, my collection was also at the barn. I mean, we had some 250 animals there we had a hell of a year with the chondros. I mean, we had probably over a hundred chondro babies and I didn't even want to go there anymore. <laughs> I mean, I just knew what was coming. And of course, at that time, Christian was just starting off. Sean didn't have the time. So any of the stubborn feeders came my way. So, you know, um, you know, and I, I kind of had a way to get them going, but it, it, it wasn't that it was so easy. You know what I mean? It wasn't, you know, I mean, for some of them, it was, I mean, for some of them, it did come down to technique, but some of them, you know, I remember my first litter, uh, the one that Mr. Blue came out of. And, you know, I remember one time calling Trooper, and I hated to call him about this because I know he would, you know, tell me about how he hated people calling him when they couldn't get Condra's feeding. And so, you know, and it, well, and he and Trooper had this, you know, little slogan that says, you can't feed them, don't breed them, you know. Um you know, it's basically what they said. And um, so I called them and I'm like, man, I've tried everything. What can I do? And, you know, and, and, and he was like, you know, sometimes you just got to really piss them off. I said, what do you mean? He goes, man, I just, I torment the hell out of these things. And so, you know, I tried that. I did get a few others going. And then I started experiment with some setting. And I remember a couple of times volunteering at the zoo and Trooper would take um, a couple times I went over to his house when he did this. He would bring a live chick home, kill it, open it up, throw pinkies into, you know, the blood and everything, you know, into the warm, you know, bloody um, a little hot body. pocket. Yeah, like a little hot pocket, right? <laughs> and that was, that, that was what he used for scenting. I tried it, I don't know how many times, it never worked for me. And so finally I started pulling chick feathers off and sticking them on the heads of wet pinkies. And, and that worked like a charm. I think the first night, I think I had about five or six holdouts. And I think I got five out of the six to basically go after them just on scent alone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I was like, wow, this is great. You know, cause at that time I got gotten some, um, 
some dead geckos from another guy. I pureed them up and dipped pinkies in there. Uh, Sean had some dead frogs. I pureed them up, dipped some pinkies in there, and none of that ever worked for me. I mean, I and I've heard some people use, you know, some of those things with some success. I just never did. And so, because the chick feather thing worked so well for me, I just always did that. But then I had some. I'm sorry. No, I was just, I'm sorry, Tim. I was just going to say, it seems as though the chick down um, more than anything else um, seems to give everybody some, some decent success when they try it. Um, yeah, that, that I, really worked out to be, you know, something that, that worked well, I think overall for most. I was curious how, how long uh, had you been trying to get those to eat before you, you finally settled on the chick down? I was going on about two months. Yeah. You know, and I knew that was getting down to time critical, really. Yeah. Um, That's what I ended up having to do with my first clutch. Yeah. Yeah. Chick Down was yep. like the silver bullet, man. Chick Down, they just went nuts over it. Like ones that had yeah. no interest in food up to that point, I threw Chick Down and it was like a like the switch had flipped. Yeah. Yeah. I was I was wondering because when I, I, I tried Chick Down very early on in the clutch that I had last year and I didn't have any takers and that was very early on after they had hatched. But then, you know, uh, a couple months in, the ones that I was still struggling to get the feed, they finally switched on with the with the chick down. And I'm, you know, sometimes I wonder if they they really need to get hungry, you know. And uh, and that chick down is just what they need at that point to get them switched over. Because um, you know, I was a bit surprised when I tried it originally. And no, I had no takers. But then, you know, a month or two in, after they've you know really been struggling for a while, um, that was definitely a a trigger to get them going. I, I know you had a similar experience, right, Justin? Yeah. 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 Nothing, nothing was working. Yeah. And I found that too. I mean, the, sometimes the bigger babies were tougher to get going. They just didn't seem to have the motivation, especially yeah. at first. And you did a lot of maternal incubation. Yeah. So that's another thing. So my first two litters and well, the one Mr. Blue came out of and the second one, actually my first, uh, I want to say my first four litters with the blue female were maternal. Um, I didn't have an incubator that I trusted back then. And at that time, um, you know, Trooper and Eugene were using these, you know, $10,000 form of scientific incubators. And, you know, the best I could come up with was one of those hovibators, you know, for <laughs> chick eggs. And, and you know, and, and I just thought, and then even in, you know, talking to Trooper about it, you know, he always said, you know, it's such a good experience to, um, you know, it's a good experience to, to, um, you're the maternal. And I, I agree. I mean, that was the biggest thrill. I mean, just watching the female do her thing and, um, and then, and just seeing, you know, how, you know, she manages the litter. Um, if I knew, you know, if I knew after the litter was hatched and what was in it, I don't know if I would have been as patient, <laughs> but, you know, being the first litter, not knowing, you know, it, it just, it was kind of just blind ignorance, you know, just kind of going through it and figuring out how to do it. Um, but that female, you know, I, I tell people all the time and they don't, you know, they find it hard to believe, but I actually saved, um, all of her data cards, um, but her first litter, maternal, 
for me was, um, you know, 95 was the breeding season, 96. You know, it was April 96 when the Mr. Blue litter hatched. And at that point, you know, she was born in April of 93. So her first litter, she was bred at two and a half years old. And her first litter hatched before she turned three. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's wild. And that girl went on to have six litters. Four of them were maternal, which were much harder on the female. Did you notice with the neonates, were they, because this is something I'm always curious about with the maternal stuff, is uh, <clears throat> were the babies bigger overall? Were they easier to get going compared to artificial, or did you not see much of a difference? I mean, I didn't really see, you know, much of a difference. And size-wise, seemed to have more to do with the um, the bloodlines, you know, than mm-hmm. you know than incubation method. You know, I knew like the 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 beox and the beox outcrosses tend to have fewer, you know, eggs, but larger eggs. Right. Um, and the 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 mutts that Trooper and Eugene had tended to have you know, bigger litters. I mean, my blue female, that was the first year that Buddy uh, Getzker bred her to Daddy Pants. She has 36 eggs. Ooh, wow. I mean, we only wound up hatching, I think, 24, 25. But that was a big litter. And all yeah. 36 looked good. I mean, they, we, we, you know, we, we incubated all of them, but then just lost a few. Tim, when you uh, set the 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 you know the the mom up for maternal incubation, what kind of ambient conditions did you set her up in? Was there anything special that you did for that? Yeah, so and this is probably stretching my memory a little bit. I know I have somewhere um, the the temperature data sheets that I had uh, run. That was another thing I picked up through Trooper when I went through his house was just how meticulous he was with you know, data collection. I mean, temperatures for this, temperatures for that. I mean, I mean, just everywhere you saw a clipboard with, you know, temperature things. So I sort of, you know, imitated that to a degree. And um, so the maternal setup that I used was using one of the two by two near the shade arboreal cages. And back then I didn't use, well, heat panels, I don't even think were around. Um, so I used the infrared, like the ZooMed infrared heat lamps. Yep. Um, so now the, the near the shade cages were kind of interesting the way they were built. Um, they put the main ventilation as a round hole in the top, but it was in the center. Yep. Which kind of sucked in a way because, you know, you would have preferred it to be on one corner. Right. You know, to kind of set up a thermal gradient. Um, but there was in the middle, so I would always push the heat lamp to as far to one side, you know, that opening as I could without melting the plastic, you know. So basically, the maternal setup was um, I had a um, like one of these smaller rough tote boxes. I still have them downstairs. They're maybe ten inches long, maybe five inches tall. Yep. You know, five inches wide kind of thing. Um, 
So I put dry sphagnum in that and then put that on one side of the cage. Everywhere else on the floor of the cage, I had just soaking wet sphagnum with a heat pad underneath of it, like not inside the cage, but under the cage. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Try to drive up the, the ambient humidity. And then I still had the heat lamp, and I think it was like a 75-watt heat lamp. And, you know, Trooper kind of helped me along with that. And basically he, you know, was kind of helping me along with the temperatures and everything. Basically said, you know, don't let the ambient temperature get any higher than 80. You want the female to do the work. And after a certain point, the eggs are going to start generating their own heat. So you may want to turn it down to the mid to upper 70s. Um, and so basically that's what I ran 24 hours was, I think, the warmest area was maybe 80. Um, cooler side, and most of the cooler side was where that tub was, was, you know, probably 78, 77, 78. You know, I can dig up all the temperatures at a thermometer probe inside the box as well. You know, and his big thing was, you know, keep it as humid as you can, but you got to keep the sphagnum in the nest box dry. Yeah, okay. You know, um, you know, because all these females get blisters, the eggs will start going bad, that kind of thing. Right. So what is it what has it been like? This is what I'm probably the most curious to hear about is just how how much things have changed from your time, you know, getting into chondros to now. Uh, I mean, obviously, it's much easier to to learn things about them. You know, you don't have to, uh, you know, know the right people or anything like that. Like now, we have the internet; you can know anything you want to know about anything. Um, so, sort of, what's it what's it been like just watching everything sort of evolve and change and switch from the days of word of mouth to forums to now, like Facebook and that yeah. kind of thing. Um, well, there were a couple of forums that started back, I don't know when Greg started. Uh, it wasn't actually Greg. It was, uh, what was his name? Um, Brian Phillips, something Phillips. Um, they were, you know, Greg was from Ohio. This guy Phillips was from Ohio as well. Um, so they had the Condro web first. Mm -hmm. And then after that died down, then I think Greg... Um, uh, what was his name out in? He's out in the out in the west. Greg, um, oh shit, he started the Morelia Forum. Schroeder. Uh, yeah, Schroeder. That's right. Uh, so Greg Schroeder started this, you know, the Morelia Veritas Forum. Um, so there was some of that starting to come on. In fact, there was. I remember back in the very old days of dial-up AOL modem internet. There was actually a um, kind of a, a message board sort of thing with Condros back then. Mm -hmm. um, so that was happening. Although the you know the main players like Trooper and Eugene, they weren't on any of that. Um, so it is kind of neat to see. I mean, it, it's it's um, interesting in that there's just so many like wild looking green trees out yeah. there now, you know, um, for the longest time, 
my blue male was the only blue male around. Mm. Um, you know, um, now there were many um, that had been produced or are around now. The multicolor ones like the, you know, like the Rosina and some of the other more exotic sort of multicolor chondros are much more numerous. Um, and, you know, people got a lot better at it. I remember, you know, one of the reasons why, you know, another one of the main reasons why I got into maternal incubation was because I didn't think, you know, Trooper and Eugene kind of developed this very specific incubating regimen, um, basically using their data, temperature data from maternally incubated or maternally incubating um, females. And so, you know, that's where they came up with this sort of 84 for the first week or, or 82 for the first two weeks, then up to 80, whatever it was, and then back down again the last two weeks. And then, you know, um, a couple of years later, you know, Rico, Rico basically came out with the steady 84 all the way through. So there was a lot of different incubating techniques that evolved, I guess, as a result of more people getting into it. And I still remember seeing a guy, uh, Larry Kenton, who wasn't a condor guy at all, but he had had a couple of them. And I remember he basically pulled out the eggs first day, separated them all, put them in vermiculite. I looked at them and I was like, dude, you're crazy. They're never going to hatch. Well, guess what? They hatched. And I know the trooper would have felt they never would have hatched, you know. So there were, you know, several people kind of, you know, coming up with their own sort of mousetraps for incubating, you know, these these eggs. Um, so that's, you know, that's that's kind of interesting now that, you know, that that is more commonplace. One of the sort of disappointing things, I guess, for me, I guess, is I, I really, and, and everybody I've ever talked to, I've always encouraged them to try the maternal incubation at least once. I mean, to me, watching an animal do something that they would do in the wild has always sort of been a thrill. And um, just watching the mom do her thing is, 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 is amazing to watch. And so... Um, I don't see where, you know, too many people, if any, that I really remember seeing have done too much with maternal, you know, incubation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, and in part because, you know, I, I get it, you know, if you're paying, you know, 20, 10 or 20 grand for a female, you're not going to, you know, it you is a lot more, it. well, it's a lot more reproductive stress. Yeah. Although I tell them, look, my blue female did four maternals and two artificials and six litters. And you just don't see that anymore. So, you know, one of the things I do wonder about is, is, and I do see that there's a lot of new blood being infused, but for whatever reason, I had, you know, I've not, I don't, not that I keep my finger on the pulse of the conduit community as much as I used to. I've not heard of too many, you know, females or really any female that I know specifically, you know, that, that had that kind of, you know, production. Yeah. And when you did maternal on her, were you giving her a year off after, or was it back to back? Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, she was given, you know, a year off. At least I think I did. 
<laughs> I'm pretty sure I did. Well, I said, I'm pretty sure I did one of, you know, one year. Um, I'll look back here and see. I, I, I'm pretty sure I did, but I may not have for one year because I remember there was a year, um, you know, in fact, I think there was a year I went back to back with her because when I sold the mail to John Holland, I sold it to him with the stipulation that he would, his first two breedings would be back to the mom, basically the blue to blue thing. Mm-hmm. And so he agreed to that. And I think they did go year to year. That was 99 and 2000. So, you know, that probably was back to back. And how are you? Well, I guess before we get into that, what are you keeping now? Cause you said you, you haven't bred in about 10 years. What, what, what kind of made you decide to, to not breed after a certain point? Yeah. So part of it was, I just kind of shifted my focus, um, to, um, a, you know, a couple of other animals. Um, and the other thing was too, I just, you know, I saw the market was getting, you know, rather saturated with, you know, really nice stuff. And so, you know, I just guess I kind of just let other people do things. And like I said before, as good as I felt I was at getting condos to feed, you know, I hated it. I mean, to me, it's like being an accountant during tax season. I mean, yeah. just, you just dread it. And, um, you know, it's not only the feeding thing, but it's the prolapses. I mean, it's all, you know, the stuff. And now you got NIDO on top of that. So, um, you know, so, I mean, part of it was just I kind of got into other things. I got lazy. Um, of course, I went through... Um, you know, a divorce to around, you know, uh, 07, 08. So there's some life changes, which, you know, kind of resulted in, you know, different focus mm-hmm. uh, for things. Um, you know, like I said, and the funny thing was, I just, you know, had several animals at the time with several other people. So I was getting animals back out of, you know, breedings other people were doing. So I felt like, to me, I would rather have three or four litters where I've split it with somebody, where Mm -hmm. it's really just two full litters, than having two full litters, you know, from one parent, you know, just to have, you know, different things to play with. Yeah. Um, But, you know, the annulated boas have been something I've been working with for a while, and finally two years ago, I was fortunate enough for three years now... um, to get a litter out of the pair that I have and then followed that up with another um, few babies this past winter or, you know, past fall. So they've been a lot of fun. Um, You know, frustrating in a little bit in that the litter sizes have been small, but the babies have been just phenomenal. And out of six babies, every single one of them took a thawed, frozen, you know, pinky from day one and never looked back. So, <laughs> you know, so that, that, so that's been kind of fun. Yeah. So how many? But you know, I did. Second. Go ahead. I was going to say, but you know, then again, you know, uh, when Cody bred a male of mine that was produced by a pairing I did with Christian, um, you know, I did take you know five of his stubborn feeders. You know, when we split the litter up. Mm-hmm. Um. You know, I took five of the stubborn feeders and one established feeder. 
And how many are you, yeah, how many condors are you keeping now? So right now I have um, well in my house I only have four. Um, I have one male that's up with James. Actually, I had a female up there that just died, um, and we kind of figured she would, but we took a chance on, you know, trying to breed her again. Um, and then I believe that's about all I have. So rather small condor collection, yeah. if you even want to call it that. And what do you, like, as far as how you're keeping them now, how much has that changed from when you, you know, over the years, have you adjusted to sort of what the quote-unquote standard has become? Or are you kind of just sticking to what you've done in the past that works? Like, what? how do you how do you prefer to keep yours as far as temperatures and feeding yeah, schedule? Yeah, I don't know that? what, yeah, I don't know what is considered, you know, the standard. Um, I did, in back in 2008, shift from the Dia de Shea cages and bought some of the um, Jim Sharphorn mm-hmm. cages, and that's what I currently keep you know, the condos in. I still believe, a part of me believes that the Nia de Chais with the heat lamps are a better setup than the PVC cages with the heat panels. Um, I just thought that the heat lamps, um, you know, kind of irradiated the heat better on the bodies of the animals. It was more spot heat. Right. But it was, I think it was a better heat. Um, so, um, but I did, you know, I had, yeah, I don't even think I ever bred condors in, in anything other than the near the shade cages that I had. I don't think I bred them. Actually, that's not true. We uh, Paul August and I bred some Marukis mm-hmm. in the, um, uh, the Sharphorn cages back in 2008. So, I mean, temperature-wise, I mean, pretty much the same. I remember I was doing some genetics research on the green trees back in 2006 through about 2008, and um, I was trying to work out this project where, at the time, Marukis were really becoming a big deal. And, um, of course, you know, some of the Marukis look somewhat similar to some, of the arus, although yeah. the arus tend to have more white scattering off the, uh, mm-hmm. you know, the the mid vertebral line. Mm-hmm. But then there are also some speculation about possibly some, you know, Australian green trees making their way out of the country. So mm-hmm. I was working on a way of using genetics to differentiate um, those three populations. You know, sort of the. The, the ones they called Maruki, which turned out to be just a port that they shipped them out of. I think most of those came from, you know, like the uh, lower highlands region, you know, the Mount Hagen and, yeah. you know, some of those other areas um, on the southern part of the mountain range. And um, so, and that, that didn't work out. I couldn't get enough of the primers to work. The primers were actually originally developed for carpet pythons, but in most other species of animals and plants, closely related species would also, you know, their DNA would also amplify in ones that were a little bit further out. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, of course, some of my reference animals that I had as part of my group as time went on, 
wouldn't have been accepted as reference group animals because of GPS becoming more um, widely used to document where specific animals came from. Only the Australian ones that had a specific GPS coordinates that went with you know, the reference animals. Mm-hmm. Um, the other ones I had acquired through Cameron Sepetalin, who at that time pretty much had what most people would consider the best idea of where some of his animals came from. Um, so, you know, I was, you know, working on that project and trying to figure out if we could, you know, figure out a way of differentiating, right. you know, those three populations. What's your favorite locality? Oh, that's well, you know, I'm sure you guys have seen, you know, Daniel's latest papers um, where they've actually um, separated out, yep. you know, yep. some of the species now, right? So, um, which is pretty cool. And in fact, I took one of his graphics and sent it to him. Um, you know, one of his... Um, I can find it here. One of his graphics you might have seen was similar to what Kathy and Bill Love did years ago with corn snakes, basically putting yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, had them next to each other so you could see. Sort of yeah. yeah. So um, I took that a step further and actually sent it to Daniel. He really liked it um, because one of the frustrating things I, that frustrated me in looking at that um, graphic was that the names of where they came from wasn't right there and they weren't like numbered in some way where I could easily compare. So I took the time and basically wrote numbers and put the localities, which were on another page, Mm -hmm. on the same page as the pictures. So, um, in fact, I'll... um, send that now to you, Justin, via Facebook. I, I made a PDF of it. So you'll be able to see. It's a lot easier to use. Um, yeah, because the original one was a little confusing. Well, yeah, I don't know so much confusing. It's just hard to put it together because, yeah. you know, the names of where they came from was on one page, and then they weren't labeled in any way. So I uh-huh. took the time to kind of go through and do it. So Daniel actually liked that idea. So... Let me see if I can find this here. Uh, is that, uh, is that not, me and David were talking before you before we called you about you know how we're both becoming very fond of Manox. Manaquaria oh, are becoming our yeah our, our favorites. And they and they seem to have produced a lot of really I guess more along the blue side of things. Um you know, and unfortunately, many of the earlier ones from Trooper, I mean, there's no tissue samples to do any DNA type of test from some of the earlier founders, which would have been really cool to do. Yeah, yeah, I was because, really interested in that, yeah. Because now you can, you know, with Daniel's studies, I mean, I'm sure you, you know, you, you could probably even send them to um, Steve Donnellan, who's the guy in Australia that's doing most of the genetics work that Daniel um as used, and also some of the stuff that before him, David Wilson, um, had sent along. So, um, so that was, you know, that would have been cool, but unfortunately, not. You know, nobody foresaw that back then. So, let's 
see, this was a PDF, here we go. Justin, I'm just sending you this PDF now. Okay. So this will be hopefully an easier, I find it to be an easier thing to, to look at as far as, you know, a, a sort of a supplement to Daniel's thing. Let me know if it, I got it. Is not readable or not. But you'll basically see what I did. I just put numbers over each one of the ones and then put um, their localities with those numbers right above it. Do, do, do. Oh, yeah, yeah. Which to me was a far easier way of. Yeah, definitely. Mm hmm. Because I thought it was fascinating what he did. I mean, I thought it was incredible. I mean, nobody had ever really done that before. Mm -hmm. And like I said, for me, it was taking too much time to go back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, you know, because all he had was left to write this to this. So I put numbers to it and thought that was an easier way to deal with that. But I think it's pretty cool now that they're actually... You know, even um, years ago, uh, when I was doing the genetics work, I think it was back in 2004, um, Steve Donnellan had published a paper um, where there was a clear delineation between the, con the mitochondrial DNA of the chondros north and south of the central mountain range in Indonesia. You know, but they didn't go so far as to push for a new species, you know, name for them. Right. But there was definitely enough, you know, genetic distance uh, between the north and south to qualify on a genetic species definition. Mm -hmm. And what kind of, uh, I mean, you've, I know you've talked to Bill and uh, Buddy about the whole sort of rat versus mice thing, and it sounded like you kind of did a little bit of both. Yeah, um, and that's always been an interesting debate. I mean, I'm not really sure if there's any one way better than another. Right. Um, you know, I know part of it originated because um, I think it was Rico came along and basically said that, you know, he did the whole calcium to phosphorus ratios and all this stuff and actually measured out you know, the weights of the animals he was, you know, the mice he was feeding off. And he was a huge proponent of mice. Um, but I also know Trooper was a big proponent of feeding as large of an animal to these things as you could. You know. Um, you know, in fact, my blue female I'm looking right now, she was, let's see, Well, she was less than a year old before she started getting her own, her first, um, she was about 11 months before her first small rat. Oh. Hmm. And to be honest, I was feeding her from there. I was, I was basically just going what Trooper did. So when I acquired her, let's see, I acquired her in August mm -hmm. of 1994. She was hatched in 93. I mean, I, I went right from there to medium rats. 
and fed almost exclusively medium rats to her. Huh. Yeah, it seems like everyone's just like terrified to do anything larger like that. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, just we know. Ready that prolapse. Yeah, and adult prolapses seem to be a lot less common. Yeah. Um, but who knows? I mean, that's the only thing that maybe I can explain the reason why she had six litters for maternal. Mm -hmm. That's a lot of reproductive stress. Yeah, you kept her pretty beefed up. Well, I guess. I mean, I, I just I was just feeding them <laughs> along as, as Trooper would, you know. Again, I... You know, I was, I was, you know, a new keeper and just, and there, as you said, there wasn't as much information. There wasn't as much opinion rolling around out there, mm -hmm. you know, and nobody's going to question Trooper. I mean, he was, you know, king. I mean, so too was Eugene, you know, at the time. So I'm looking through some questions that were sent to me earlier mm. for you. Two of which came from one Cody Bartolini and one James Opdow. So, who knows? Like, you, I, get ready for some tomfoolery from those two. Yeah, I'm sure some off the wall stuff from. But Brian Fisher wants to know if you ever produced any pides. He said any you, pied you pied balls. He said you had some pied balls at one point and you couldn't get them to breed. <laughs> Yeah, so I did actually. Yeah, I did manage to do that. And in fact, the reason why I couldn't get them to breed, as it turns out, is um, I was trying to feed them at my house when I was married. I didn't keep any live food. Mm -hmm. So I was feeding them salt. And those balls didn't feed consistently on that. So the females never really got a good size. Then when I got divorced and moved in with Sean and moved, you know, all my animals into the barn, you know, Christian and I started up, you know, basically, you know, a, a live mouse and, um, you know, a live mouse and rat uh, colony. And when I started, you know, with the live rats on the fall pythons, the females grew like crazy and, and, Bred the following year. And then, let's see. Cody says there's a legend of Tim Morris walking into a bar with an erection and there were no survivors. He was wondering if that's true. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, well, we, we, uh, yeah, so maybe, maybe, maybe a well-known... Um, Melrose Bar. <laughs> he also said, is it true that the skateboard legend Tim Morris once had a threesome with Paris Hilton and Lindsay Lohan on Molly? <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> I think that's maybe the BMX. I think that's the BMX legend Cody Bartolini. <laughs> how did you, how did you get involved with James? With James also? Yeah. Because watching you so all at James, Daytona was a trip, man. Say again? I said watching you two at Daytona was a trip. Oh, yeah, yeah. We're a lot of fun together. So um, 
So James, and I don't remember how he found out about me, uh, but he had bought an animal from me. Um, I want to say it was out of the daddy pants blue female pairing that Buddy Gesker and I did. And so there was also this um, big condor gathering um, at this restaurant here in Maryland called uh, Hunan Manor. It was the Jurgen Fest. I don't know if you remember hearing about that from this guy, Jurgen, um, as a Van Spurgen. He's in Netherlands, I believe. He was an old condor guy. Mm-hmm. And so he had come over to the States, and we, we agreed that we would have this big party for him. So anyway, James and a friend of his came down, and that was the first time I met him in person. And um, James was already stirring up the shit. He was... Um, he was John Holland had gotten really pissed at him because he was offering, you know, pop to the waiters and waitresses, you know, at this, you know, Chinese restaurant and the owner was getting really pissed off. You know, John was like, dude, you can't do that. And so, yeah, James got really hammered that night and we nicknamed him because he was trying to hit on somebody. I can't remember who we, and so we, we, we nicknamed him stovepipe. You know, because he was just out of control, you know, trying to trying to work the angle on people. Um, so that 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 was a you know funny story with him, and we just kind of became friends ever since. I've been up to his place several times. He's got a fantastic collection, and I mean, he's a master woodworker, so he had built a lot of his own cages, and um, I mean, it's just furniture grade setup. I mean, it's. It's it's phenomenal. I mean, all the way down to the, you know, the branches that he's, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah, Andy Middleton sent me some pictures down. of it, and it's it's unreal. He just yeah, he's yeah. so good at it. Yep. But, um, David, did you have anything else? Because I think I'm. Uh, I think the only thing I was curious about, because I may do maternal at some point. Um, you know, just a quick question on, on the female when she's huddled on the eggs for that length of time. Does she periodically leave them to like rehydrate or anything like that? Or Yeah, so um, you definitely wanted to have water available. So what I would do is on top of the lid of that um, whatever it was, the rough tote, I yeah. would have like a small heavy water dish just to make sure she could knock it over inside, you know. Um, But they, you know, she rarely, um, I don't know that she drank anything once the eggs were laid. You know, I I think I have water available. Um, I believe that, you know, once, you know, she, you know, laid the eggs and, you know, coiled them up that she was, she was done for the 51 days. Wow. You know, um, and it's quite remarkable. It's pretty neat when you start seeing the the babies sort of the noses pop out. You know, she'll loosen her coils, and you know, there's a lot of things that they do to try to help the babies. You know, get out. You know, and I didn't wait for all of them. I mean, I waited for you know several to pit, and then you know I pulled her off and then separated because I was concerned about the eggs that were towards the inside of the, you know, the beehive. Yeah. Um, right. 
So, um, you know, and, you know, I, I, I want to say, I'd have to look back on the data cards, but I want to say her first litter, I had, um, I don't know if I have it written down here. That must have been the next data card. So her prelay shed was uh, December 27th of 96. And I believe she had, what I have, 27 eggs, and I think I hatched out 17, I want to say. But I'd have to look and see. So I didn't have, you know, 100% hatches either year or any of the maternal years, but, you know, I did manage, you know, there was at least two-thirds to three-quarters hatched. And was it more nerve-wracking when you switched to artificial, where you were like, I now... Well, for me it was, because, like I said, prior to, you know, like now, where there were more incubation sort of regimens, mm-hmm. um, you know, Trooper and Eugene were using former scientific incubators, and, you know, um, I think it was around the early 2000s that AV incubators started coming out with an incubator that seemed to work pretty well. You know, they were using, right. you know, the big igloo containers uh, or igloo coolers. And those incubators work pretty well. And that was probably my better artificial incubations happened with one of those. Mm-hmm. I mean, I did try artificially incubating one litter that the female got off of. I don't think it was the blue female, it was another female. And they just all crashed. Oh, that sucks. But did you didn't have that happen a lot, though, right? Where the female just sort of abandoned? Yeah, nature. not really. I had an Aru once that um, laid eggs in the nest box, laid some outside the nest box, coiled around some of the ones on the outside, had some outside the coils. So she was kind of a mess. I had a blocked female that um, her first litter... She laid in a water bowl. Nice. <laughs> so they all died. Um, so the second time I bred her, I took the water bowl out when I, I knew she was getting near. Um, but aside from that, the blue female always was good with her eggs. Um, and I think she she was the only one that I did maternal with. The other ones... You know, I I did all artificial. Hmm. But a couple of them would have had to have been artificial, like the Aru. She, you know, she had eggs in the nest box, out of the nest box, and so you would have been forced into, you know, artificially incubating at least some of them. And had that female bred before, or was that her first time? Uh, That's a good question. I want to say that was her first litter. That was a... Really nice-looking wild-caught Aru that I picked up down in Daytona, Mm -hmm. probably around 2004. And she she wound up producing the year I was at the barn in 2008. I want to say that was her first litter. Hmm. Well, sounds like David is getting further than I am when it comes to breeding this year um my pair is doing nothing besides 
apparently biting and wrapping each other like they did tonight. <laughs> um, so yeah, it's tough. I mean, I that that's <clears throat> goes back to the you know the one of your earlier questions as far as yeah, I mean, I was just lucky. I mean, I had two chondros and they both bred and you know, I mean, even blue male aside, you know, just you know having that kind of luck. I mean, looking back was you know quite remarkable, I guess. And did you guys ever? Again, I don't think it was anything I ever did. I just got lucky. Right. But did you guys, as far as like the earlier days, were you guys doing any cycling or was there food cycling? Any or was it just kind of like keeping together and whatever happens, happens? Yeah, no, I mean, there definitely was cycling going on. In fact, I had tried to breed a couple other things, not chondros, but a couple other animals prior to that, um, where they were basically in my bedroom. And it wasn't until um, I had a, you know, an apartment and we had gotten a two-bedroom apartment. One bedroom, we basically just made a snake room. And it wasn't until we were fairly regimented with the light, daylight cycles and, you know, a little bit of nighttime cooling um, that we um, had much, you know, had any success really. But there are people now that do all the right things, you know, cycling wise and still, you know, I mean, James has a really nice F1 uh, Bioc, um of mine. Uh, he just can't get the breed. And I had a similar experience with a very nicely striped Maruki uh, back in 2003, 2004 that belonged to my nephew that we just couldn't get the breed for no reason at all. You know, but then you had other animals like Troopers, Maruki, Alcross. That thing would breed and eat at the same time. <laughs> I mean, I mean, it never went off feed. You know, my legend male always went off feed for two or three months. Um, but that Maruki Alcross never, never skipped a meal. You know, throughout the whole breeding season. You know, and would just breed. Is you know, he he was a very prolific breeder. These things are a mystery. Yeah, they definitely are. You know, and there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of different ways. You know, I, I still recall the conversation I had um, with Carl Swiatek because I was asking him about, you know, some of the, where some of these Mar so-called Marukis were coming from, you know, because he wrote that book. Um, was it um, Green Green Python Country yeah, or something like Green that? Green Python Country. Right. Yeah, it's it's an awesome book. Um, unfortunately out of print, but, um, I did actually manage to get a hold of him and talk to him for a little while. Um, he swore up and down that every one of us are keeping condors way too warm. Mm -hmm. You know, he was, he was telling me about, you know, some of these, you know, um, higher elevation condors where he was measuring rainwater temperatures in the low forties, the high thirties. And these things are just sitting on a branch somewhere. You know. Yeah, I mean, you think about Boellans and stuff. You know, those are way up there, and those are. That's you know, right. Not going to be keeping That's those right. warm. Yeah, you know, and even Trooper was always of the mindset that you could cool these things down even into the '60s if you wanted to, so long as you gradually gave them some warmth. You know, you know the yeah. next, you know, the next day, and if you look at 
you know, the reproductive husbandry book, that's pretty much the temperature regimen they, you know, they, they kind of promoted with all the follows and pythons. Mm-hmm. You know, cool them down, but then warm them back up the next day kind of thing. Yeah, that's, um, that's what Casey Cannon does with his brettles. He'll cool yeah. them down into like the 50s or even lower than that at night, and then during the day he brings them back in, gives them a hot spot, and then right. just repeats. <clears throat> but brittles can also handle but it, anything. But again, I mean, I, I I still believe to this day that, in my opinion, and I even believe this is, well, maybe not entirely true, but in my experience, I mean, I swear by the setups that are using like the heat lamp versus mm. heat panels. Mm-hmm. Now I know, you know, Christians had phenomenal success with heat panels. So, I mean, that may or may not be anything of significance, but, um, you know, I always felt that, you know, that the heat lamp just kind of gave a better sort of ray of heat, you know, more, more concentrated. Focused. Yeah. Yeah. And it gave the animal sort of, you know, more, you know, more latitude, in, in my opinion, to help me anyway, you know, create more of a gradient. Mm-hmm. I know John Irby's talked about that. He does his heat panels. I don't know if he does all of them or if he just does some of them, but he has his heat panel mounted in the center of the cage instead of on one side. Yeah. And that sort of, I guess, improves the gradient by giving him more options as far as being able to get away to the, you know, the cooler ends. Right. And again, it just, you know, uh, one of the other things that Trooper always ingrained in me too was, you know, try not to lock yourself into any particular protocol or regimen. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, he was always the mindset. And I, and I still think to this day, you know, like Steve Irwin, you know, Trooper had sort of a an, 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 an innate sense of understanding these animals. I mean, he's, you know, as you may know, he was the lead keeper credited with reproducing the Komodo dragons. And National Zoo was the first zoo outside of Indonesia to successfully hatch, you know, breed and hatch Mm -hmm. Komodo dragons. And a lot of that was because of husbandry changes that Trooper, you know, created. And one of the things he would always say is, you know, watch the animals. If you see that they're always on the warm end, lower the temperature or, you know, um, increase the temperatures. If they're always seeking out the cool end, you know, um, turn them down. And if they seem to be going back and forth and things are probably, you know, pretty good. See, I don't know, because I've got my big female, man. Like, I've I've toyed with her temperatures a lot, and she just chills under the heat panel. Doesn't matter if I bump it up. Doesn't matter if I bump it down. That's huh. just her spot. Because mm-hmm. I've experimented with it, and you know, maybe I just didn't experiment. Like, I need to go either higher, higher, or lower, lower than what I was trying. But Yeah, keep cracking it up until uh, you chase her away. <laughs> yeah. She's you know, also anything um, that moves is food. So I mean, she's always in the yeah. she's always in the zone, man. Yeah, hey, I'm I'm with you, Tim, on the more focalized or focused, you know, heat spot. I what I've been doing um, with my females that are gravid, I use those. Um, they're 25 watt ceramic heat emitters uh, mm-hmm. instead of a radiant panel, so it's a very small area that 
this thing is throwing heat and and you can watch them shift um, in and out of that zone um, you know over an hour kind of regulating that that body temperature so it's it's nice to have that that smallish area uh, i i keep everything ambient so i only use the the um, the uh, supplemental heat once i know they're they're gravid and um, they definitely make good use of it and I, I, my cages aren't huge, so having a smaller spot like that certainly helps. And and they know right where to go, um, you know, to do what they need to do, and then shift away if they need mm -hmm. to be, you know. And and it's a nice cheap way of doing it too. Those ceramic heat emitters are not expensive. How do you no, do that no. in your setups, though, David? Like, how do What's you have the, how do you have that set up on your on your setups? Yeah, so I have a. Um, a metal grate basically uh, on the top of the enclosure because I run some UV light too. Uh -huh. um, and then I have it shifted to one side completely, the, the heat emitter with, you know, a thermostat probe right underneath of it and um, on the top perch. And and they'll just shift over and and they spend a, a decent amount of time underneath that. I've got it set at 86. Hmm. And, um, you know, she'll she'll have about half of her body underneath that zone and she'll continuously shift around, you know, uh, which part of her body is in that area. Um, but they're, they're definitely making good use of it. Um, but I would say at least 90% of the time they're, they're utilizing that. Hmm. I have to send me a picture of that. I'm curious. I'm curious. Yeah. To see. It's, it's ridiculously simple <laughs> the way that it's set up. I'll show you. Yeah. I mean, again, a lot of people have had great success with heat panels. I've slowly over the years adopted them more for convenience than anything else. Yeah. Um, you know, because with the Neo Deshaies cages, you know, they weren't very space efficient because you had to have that gap between the cages. You couldn't just set yeah. one on top of the other. Yep. Um, yeah. So there, 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 there's a cost there, but... Um, but I think that's, I mean, that's where I had my best success um, with them. I think Buddy Getzger also was using them for, you know, the animals that he had. Um, you know, Trooper had these gigantic, um, and they were almost either three or four foot long and two feet tall and these enormous gigantic melamine and wood things that uh, Eugene actually built that he had used for, you know, breeding his animals. But he his his home setup was pretty interesting. I mean, he kept the animals downstairs, which is where he and his wife's bedroom was also. And he he always maintained the temperatures down there, the ambient around sixty eight to seventy, always, um, even in summertime. I mean, it was cold down there. Mm -hmm. And then he would provide, you know. Heat bulbs is what he would use, heat lamps, um, for all of his, you know, um, sub-adults on up. You know, that the other ones were, you know, kept in tubs on heat tape. Yeah. Cool. Well, uh, I believe we have everything covered. Oh, wait, Brahms must have dropped out. Brahms, are you back? I am. <laughs> Damn it. 
didn't even know you Somehow left. Dropped out. I was like, who's calling me? <laughs> I don't know what happened. Um, I was just about to wrap things up because I think we've covered everything we wanted to cover. Yeah, this has been a great call. It's been a pleasure talking with you, Tim. Yeah, it's been a pleasure, you know, kind of going back through, you know, through the time and, um, you know, talking about some of these, you know, some of these things. There's a, yeah. You know, I always feel like, um, you know, I guess in a way, even though I'm not as much into the, you know, the chondro end of the snakes anymore, um, you know, I've done a few other podcasts um, over the years where, you know, I have kind of, along with a few others, have kind of at least helped sort of bridge, you know, the new and the old sort of keep the historical stuff, you yeah. know, going because there's a lot of, you know, good historical stuff out there, um, especially with, you know, some of the designer lines, Um and a lot of, you know, useful information, a lot of people just getting into it wouldn't necessarily know anything about because, you know, some of these resources for these things have, you know, kind of disappeared. Yeah. Yeah, things are, are definitely scattered. It's kind of hard to find a concentrated source of, of this info. Because I was, I was trying to do a little bit of research on, uh, you know, Mr. Blue and things like that. And it was surprisingly not very easy to dig up just through simple Google searching. It, it made me wish that somebody would put together like a Wikipedia page just for like Mr. Blue and, and all that information. It'd be a great source. Yeah. Well, if you want to send me your email, I mean, I've put together a couple different things and if there's any specific information about any of the animals or even some of Trooper's animals, I've got pictures of, you know, like I said, I've got pictures of many of the, um, and they may be available elsewhere too, but, I know I was the original source of them because I had a a friend at the National Zoo I became friends with during my time volunteering there. I had him take pictures of all these old yeller sibs um, at a time when, you know, it was in Trooper's personal room, which nobody went into. Um, but Brian went in there and took pictures of all these. And so I've got, you know, some of those pictures as well. And, you know, some other ones of, Various times when I was, you know, at Troopers um, doing miscellaneous things. Um, and, of course, I have all the lineages and oh, yeah, you know, things like great. that still. So, um, you know, any of that kind of information, um, if I think about it, you know, you guys, I'm sure, will be down at Daytona again this year. Um, I could, you know, over the summer work on you know, the catalog of the different um, lineages I have, print them out and, you know, because you guys would probably get a lot more use out of them than, yeah. you know, I would these days. Well, Billy and um, I are talking about doing an all-Condro issue of the magazine sometime later this year. I want to say, like, maybe May-ish. Okay. And I know Mark Hager's talked about doing a, like, talking to some people about collecting some information as far as, like, where some of the bloodlines originated, like the Calico stuff and Lemon Tree and all that. Um, but, it I mean, it'd be really cool to have something like that as far as the basis for the blue stuff. and, and Yeah, absolutely. Stuff, so, um, yeah, we'll, have to, we'll have to coordinate that. And even just some oddball things, like I said, I've got, you know, scanned copies of, you know, my blue females data cards where you can see, you know, the litters and, 
I mean, just it's crazy. I mean, I look back on it now and think, you know, and I wouldn't even raise a condor like that, you know, now. <laughs> you know, just and, I, and some of these and these rats I was feeding her were legitimate medium rats. I mean, <laughs> I mean, I mean, they weren't they weren't small so, rats. Yeah. They were legit medium rats that you're feeding like, you know, you know, nearly full grown boa constrictors. Right. So but that's the way Trooper did it. And I was like, yeah, I guess that's just the way you do it. Yeah. And that wasn't until many years later where, um, you know, you know, when, when Rico came out with, you know, his sort of, um, you know, kind of informal study of, you know, the phosphorus calcium ratios of, you know, baby mice versus, you know, um, what was it? There was, um, um, you know, like weanling rats versus small mice mm -hmm. and things like that. You know, and so making the case that, you know, there's a better ratio in the mice versus, you know, rats. So, um, so that was interesting, you know, um, that old debate. But by that point, you know, I'd already, you know, raised and bred and did all that stuff. So I didn't really feel the need to change. Although I do think I did not feed as heavy. You know, I think that blue female was probably about the only one. And they were big snakes. I mean, my blue female, um, Powder, and Joan Collins, they were, I mean, they were legitimate five-foot monster snakes. I mean, that was a crazy litter that he had. And I don't even remember some of the other snakes that came out of that same litter. But, you know, you just don't, I mean, I have not seen things like that since. You know, we didn't even measure them back then. I don't even know. They were probably two, you know, two kilos. Jeez. Wow. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I just guess. But, you know, you consider a snake that big that you're feeding medium rats to, they're, they're, they're pretty happy. And they didn't look disproportional. That was the odd thing. You know, they, they looked as they should. They so, Justin, good. I just sent you another thing that I just kind of put together years ago that isn't complete by any stretch, but it's um, just kind of a designer green tree lineage archive. It just kind of puts together some of the, you know, green trees that I knew of or know of and some of the, you know, um, more, you know, glamorous siblings that were also part of the same litter. Oh, awesome. Yeah, I'd so, like, I'm, I'm, we usually try to keep it to a certain number of pages, but I'm pretty much going to tell Billy there's no limit. When it comes to chondros, I'll make that thing 120 right. pages. I don't even care. <laughs> someone make it says, a exactly. Someone wants to put something in there. I'm like, hell yeah, throw it in there, man. I'm not saying no. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, even just a, um, uh, what do you call it? A, uh, uh, what the hell are you, like a scrapbook of just miscellaneous, you know, things that, yeah. you know, you wouldn't know existed or whatever, you know, like, data cards or, you know, random pictures of some of the troopers earlier stuff mm -hmm. or whatever. So unfortunately, um, you know, troopers health is waning. So I'm sure he probably wouldn't, you know, have anything to add. And the other unfortunate part, the last time I did spend time with him was probably about two and a half years ago. And he was kind of in transition, but he had mentioned that down in the basement of the house he was in, were several boxes, not just one, several boxes 
of old pictures and all kinds of stuff from back in those days. And I was just itching. I was like, any day, I'd be happy to come in here and clean it out, go through it, whatever you want. You know, so uh, as far as I know, they still exist. Um, You know, now that I'm thinking about it, maybe I'll hit them up again and tell them I want to come get them. (laughs) Yeah, preserve them, man. You know? I mean, I, it it might be one of those situations where it may require him to sort of, you know, add context to the pictures mm-hmm. in terms of what they actually are. I don't know. You know, he was a very good record keeper. But, of course, this was long before digital images and everything else. So, um, so I'm not sure how much, you know, he would remember. I mean, yeah. he's for, forgotten more things than I'll know. But... <laughs> um, but even now, I know he's he's just been out of it for so long. Um, you know, he he doesn't remember a lot of things, which is one of the reasons why it's good to kind of keep you know sort of historical thing because there's unlike you know many other snake species. I mean, maybe save for gray banded king snakes. I mean, where else can you maybe still get animals that right. have you know? you know, documented bloodlines that go back to the mid seventies. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, um, at least they had the forethought to maintain those kind of pedigrees back then. Yeah. And it's wild to think that, you know, at that point back then, if someone had not done something like that, you know, that would change the course of, of a lot of things that we have now. And a lot right. of things we know now, you know, the whole butterfly effect kind of thing. Hmm. Or if someone one day was just, ah, I don't feel like writing this down or taking this picture, it doesn't matter, whatever. Yeah, and there were still, you know, several keepers then that were like that. I mean, there was a guy up in Ohio named Jeff Hudson who had, um, uh, what was the bloodline he was working with that everybody was crazy about? Uh, it was one of the blue bloodlines. I can't remember. Anyway, he he didn't keep any records. And when you gave him data cards with an animal, they disappeared. So there was literally no records of, of things. Hmm. Um, I can remember the name of the blue female that he had that everybody was going after. Um, up to text Sean, he'll know. But anyways, I mean, that I think that animal eventually came back to Sean, but then there was no records, you know, of litters that it may have had, even, mm-hmm. you know, of its past. You know, and even if we didn't have the the lineage or pedigree, if they still kept sort of the accession numbering system that Trooper and Eugene used, you could usually figure it out. Um, because I have a lot of the lineages of animals I never even owned. Because once I started making some of the lineages for my animals, Trooper liked them so much, he sent me home with a whole bunch of handwritten ones and I made lineages for him. And so, you know, I have several you know, lineages for, you know, animals that I never even, you know, owned or worked with. I mean, they were from some of the bloodlines that I, you know, what, what, you know, I had, but not the specific animals. Yeah. I'm, I'm so. so bad about keeping up with, you know, all that stuff. There's a few guys that they're like an encyclopedia, you know, you name Yeah, well, Christian's I, one of them, or at least he was. I mean, I just, I can't keep up with them know, all. Yeah. Yeah. Either. <laughs> well, it's tough unless it's right there. I mean, you know, if it's not right there for you, then 
you know, it's, it's tough when you have to go do your own research, you know? Well, it goes back to what David was saying, you know, some of that stuff is just, there's, you know, either the websites they were on are long gone or that information is just, you kind of get little crumbs of it as you, as you go along, but. It, yeah, uh, for so many years, we were dying to get pictures of Al Zulich's original blue, you know, female. And I think Greg Stevens one year pulled up or acquired basically a little thumbnail, you know, so you can't really blow it up. It gets too blurry, but <laughs> it's a little tiny little picture, but at least it gives you an idea. Foot. You can't see much, yeah. but it's there. <laughs> That's right. That's exactly right. Yep. Pretty much the same thing. Well, we're at about two hours, so we can wrap it up. Um, yeah. We definitely appreciate you coming on. It's an absolute okay. honor. Yeah, thanks for having me. I, uh, I hope to get down to Daytona this year. We we I'm getting married on October 17th. So oh, wow. Congratulations. Gotta, thank you. Very I got nice. to navigate the time off with the boss, and so I'm trying to be <laughs> asking for too much, and obviously I have to pick one, and we know which one that's going to be. Yeah, right. There you go. Right. Right. But I'm going to try and get down there. It was a really good time. Last year was the first year I went, and it was a blast. So definitely. Yeah. Yeah. It is something you have to experience once if you've never done it. I enjoyed hanging out at P and Cody's beforehand, too. Yeah. You know, definitely roughing it when you're going there, but it's a phenomenal setup and, and just. Yeah, you know, the nicest people. Absolutely. All right, man. Well, I appreciate it. Yeah. Uh, David. Well, thanks, guys. It's been a pleasure. Yeah. Yeah, same here. As always. Like I said, anything you guys need, just don't hesitate. If I can't find it or don't have it, I'll let you know. But if I do, you're welcome to it. Awesome. Thanks. I will talk to Billy yeah. and we will figure out when we are going to do that issue and then we will make it happen. So. That sounds good. And I'll just. Send you everything I have, and you can decide what you want to throw in there. Cool. All right, y'all. I appreciate it. Yep. We'll holler at you later. All right. Sounds good. You guys have a good night. You later. too. See you guys. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. All right. Episode 22. It's good to be back. Uh, don't know when the next episode's going to be. It might be another three months. We'll see. Um. So, obviously, this... David Bromps sponsors this show. Specialty Enclosure Designs. Anything arboreal, anything not arboreal. Uh, he's got the stuff for it. Perch holders, perches, uh, the water bowl holders, which I actually did a video on today that talks about putting plants in those in like a 32-ounce deli cup in the water bowl holders. So you add a little sort of natural flair to your tubs. Uh, Python portals, Draco portals. All that good stuff, David's got it, especially EnclosureDesigns.com. Thanks again to Tim Morris for coming on. He's a really awesome guy. really enjoyed hanging out with him. Um, cool to hear more history with everything. Uh, I hope everyone enjoyed it. Until next time, we'll see you later.